paper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob. And Chloe, good morning. Good morning, everyone. So um, before I guess we go into um, the program, um, I would like to acknowledge that Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so one of the, I guess the... Probably this is probably the time um, for the start of the program, Chloe, to kind of talk a bit, I guess, about some of the kind of headline kind of news developments that have happened, I guess, in the past kind of week. And interestingly enough, we actually do have some news um, to kind of talk and rant about that's not necessarily related to COVID. But probably some of our listeners yesterday probably heard that there was this major announcement by um, the federal government, i.e. Scott Morrison. And this major announcement involved um, Australia has apparently is is to acquire, and as kind of reported in um, the ABC, Australia is to acquire a nuclear submarine fleet as part of a historic partnership with the US and the UK to counter um, China's supposed kind of influence. And in fact... Um, this is kind of being described as um, kind of historical in terms of like probably the most kind of significant and um, change of defence's strategic direction in decades. And essentially, what if, what is kind of um, what it's basically amounting to is Australia is essentially aiming, um, with the support of um, Britain and the United States, um, to make the Navy's next submarine um, marine fleet um, nuclear powered. And President Scott, um, not President, Prime Minister uh. <laughs> Scott Morrison was um, quoted as saying that a new, the new, that this new alliance that has been formed with the UK and the US has been the most sec- most significant um, security development for Australia since the ANZUS Treaty. And I guess one of the kind of things is the one of the other kind of particularities of this deal is it as a kind of announced by US President Joe Biden and UK Prime Minister um, Boris Johnson, um, the US is going to help share secret nuclear technology um, to help uh, Australia make this kind of um, switch. And I guess the fleet will probably be the first kind of initiative of a newly formed trilateral security partnership called IUKUS. So... Yeah, just to, I guess uh, there's a lot to kind of unpack, I guess, in some of these kind of announcements. But I guess, I mean, as we've sort of spoken about in um, our program previously, you know, this is all part, I think, of it's really kind of part of the imperialist kind of powers like the likes of the United States, the UK and Australia uh, attempting to kind of flex their kind of muscle um, and weight and influence, especially in military might, especially in the context of 
this kind of ongoing kind of dispute and trade war against China. And of course, what's um, it, it completely kind of follows, I guess, this trend of beating the um, the war um, the war um, the mm. drums of war um, against China, which I think you know, as any socialist and as any left wing person, we should absolutely be opposed um, to this military kind of partnership. Um, and of course, you know, there's obviously the issue of obviously this, you know, pl- mil- I, I, I bet, you know, um, many military sort of comp- private arms contractors are going to get, you know, millions in profits as a result of this kind of historical deal, which I think just says kind of everything. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is this is terrifying um, and a frightening prospect. I mean, this is this is not what the people want to be warring with China. And I don't I don't remember asking for a fleet of nuclear powered um, submarines. That's definitely um, not going to bring about peace and stability, which are words that you know they are trying to attach to this hideous contract. Um, it, it's just it's dangerous. It could lead to nuclear war. And I mean, I, mean, I know this is kind of getting off track, but the government can't even commit to a um, net zero emissions by 2050. But you know, I mean, which is too late for the planet anyway. But they can commit billions of dollars to to this to make these nuclear submarines um and i think adam bant called them um floating chernobyls uh, the the greens leader adam bant um yeah i I just think it if it wasn't for covid anti-war um campaigners and the trade union movement the anti-nuclear movement would all be at the steps of parliament protesting um this decision that was really made in really quickly and in secret which is typical of the morrison government Mm. they just make decisions like this and it just sort of comes yeah. up the next day in yeah. the news. Well, on the topic of unions, um, one um, trade union has already kind of spoken out against this deal. Um, mm. So the Electronical Trade Union has kind of released um, a statement, and I think it's worth um, looking up on their Facebook page to um, to see the particularities of the statement. And I guess, I mean, you raise kind of like a good point, Chloe, about this question of, guess, money. I mean, mm. the government, um, you know, we're currently, you know, we're, we're currently in this situation where with the COVID-19 pandemic where, you know, we're all, most of us are in lockdown, like at least in New South Wales and Victoria. We're pretty much in kind of indefinite, some kind of indefinite lockdown, although there are some restrictions easing soon. But I mean, um, and, and it's like one of the kind of issues with, um, as we sort of criticised um, the punitive kind of nature of these lockdowns, you know, the government, um, the government apparently can't foot the bill for, say, things like, you know, Reinstating JobKeeper, increasing the job seeker rate, um, you know, giving proper income support, you know, to help people stay at home and not have to go to work while we're in the midst of, I guess, a pandemic. Uh, and, but they get, yeah, they find, <laughs> but they find plenty of money for these kind of military kind of deals, which are all really designed to further, um, Australia's imperialist interests, um, in, especially in the context of the Asia Pacific, because I think one of the kind of ongoing kind of um, foreign sort of policy issues is that Australia wants to keep, ha- um, it wants to be the dominant party in the Asia Pacific in terms of its influence, especially in terms of like, you know, you know, ca- um, um, their, um, particular capitalist kind of interests, etc. They want, Australia wants to be the one to write all the trade deals, um, with the Asia Pacific. They want to set the terms of agreement. And of course, the kind of growing sort of economic sort of power and weight of China is seen as a threat to that. But, you know, as, you know, as working class people, we have nothing to gain by aligning ourselves um, with Australia's so-called national interests. In fact, they'll often always sort of justify these, um, 
historical these deals on the basis of the national interests, the national security, yeah. as if um they're keeping Sh- us all safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if as if um China is currently um building up um all this sort of um military bases and etc surrounding Australia. Oh wait, I forgot that was actually that's actually the United States. But yeah, mm. that's that's a um that's besides the point. And I think you know that's a, just an example. I think of how they attempt to kind of mislead you know ordinary people by you know appealing to this sort of abstract sort of national interest. But really, what they're really talking about is their own sort of um, economic kind of self interest. Yeah, that's right. We a couple of months ago, Green Left did hold a really good forum on this um, that you can check out on YouTube, and and we also played a bit of it on uh, 3CR where we did speak about you know what is behind this hysteria against China and what we should do to oppose the the imperialist led war against China. Um, but yeah, I, I just like I love the fact that um, New Zealand, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinta Ardern, she she said that. Yeah, that the these um submarines that haven't even been designed yet, I don't think. They haven't even been built or designed. Um that they would not they would be banned from entering New Zealand waters. Um yeah, because of the the country's long-standing non-nuclear policy. And like most of the rest of the world, I mean, they're trying to reduce their commitment to nuclear energy. And we've got you know, Australia, the Australian government moving towards it. I mean, they're just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And it kind of one, one of the other interesting kind of things is, is it kind of shows and, and, you know, as, as we've, we've generally sort of, um, put a kind of, I think at free, at generally at Green Left Radio and Free CR, mm. we kind of put, um, we always, we're generally kind of opposed to, you know, expanding kind of any rollout of uranium mining and of nuclear power. And of course, you know, one of the kind of issues that, you know, activists, um, anti-nuclear activists often kind of bring up is, you know, generally often nuclear power plants, um, as they're kind of implemented within Western kind of capitalist countries, they generally, it's generally kind of cover, um, for, you know, um, expanding, um, nuclear weapon kind of development because, you know, yeah. Even in the context of, um, even in the context of Australia, Australia makes all sorts of deals with weapons companies, etc. And of course, you know, this is just all part, I think, of the nature, I guess, of the Australian state, which is, you know, overtly imperialist and wants to um, further its own sort of imperialist sort of agendas and interests. Yeah, the warmongers will be salivating right now. They'd be very excited. Mm. And I guess the the kind of last kind of thing to guess comment on this is i mean yeah this is um going back to okay guess one of the original points you know as sort of chloe kind of implied you know if um we we should if if we weren't in lockdown we should definitely be out on the streets mm. about this um we should definitely be working towards building um some uh, 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 anti-war movement bringing together progressives unions um all sorts of working class kind of organizations to make a stand against this because you know we do not you know we have nothing to gain out of any kind of um ordinary people have nothing to gain out of any sort of potential war um against china and i think you know we have to be steadfast and and staunchly opposed to any kind of um war and any sort of military um and increased military spending mm-hmm. and i think you know um, the kind of going back to the kind of argument we sort of made earlier, you know, the government. There's so many issues that the government, you know, that this government um, needs to address, i.e., climate change. It still needs to apparently uh, address this um, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it still needs to do much more to support, you know, ordinary working class people. Um, and the fact that it's just, you know, the fact that this is considered 
a big major announcement mm. that we all have to be, you know, conscious of is, yeah, I think just says everything about, you know, the nature of the Australian state. All right, so I might just go play um, a quick, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the next part of the program, I was going to be playing um, a Green Left kind of podcast that has um, been recorded by in um, Sydney. And um, this um, this is um, titled um, PSM's Aru, um, Malaysia's Latest Unelected Government. And to give a bit of background on this, Malaysia got its second unelected government in a row on August the 20th when the king appointed Ismail um, Sabri Yaqub um, prime minister. Um, the new PM is from the United Malaysian National Organization, which lost the last general election in 2018 after monopolizing power since 1957 when British colonial rule e- ended. And this podcast features um, Green Left's Peter Boyle speaking to the Socialist Party of Malaysia, Deputy Chairman um, Sig Akhlashilin, or better known as Aru. And yeah, hope our listeners um, enjoy this interview, which we'll be playing for the next 25 minutes, four minutes. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Welcome to the people-powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Malaysia got its second unelected government in a row on August 20th, when the king appointed Ismail Sabri Yaakob, the new prime minister. The new PM is from the United Malaysia National Organization, or AMNO, which lost the last general election in 2018 after monopolising power ever since independence from British colonial rule in 1957. I spoke to Party Socialist Malaysia Deputy Chairperson S. Arijelvan, better known as Arul, via Zoom on September 7.
Welcome, Arul. Now, Malaysia has had its second appointed government in a row. Uh, and uh, is this a, some sort of crisis for uh, parliamentary democracy in, in Malaysia? Since the last election, the government has not got a clear majority. So the majority, there's a lot of people calling for this anti-hoping law because the government is not stable. MPs can jump, you know, uh, from one party to another to destabilize the government. So I think uh, this, the, the latest um, crisis happened when AMNO has his own internal crisis and AMNO being the party longest in power, they were able to uh, create a crisis and then withdrew the support from the government they were in. You know, and, and, um, and I think, so this has made, and, and truly true that the last two governments have not been appointed by the people. There's no elections and there is no, uh, any call for a referendum. And a lot of, a lot of first thing, a lot of young people, uh, also feel the same way that this is elite politics because MPs decide. They go in their, you know, their Porsche cars to the king's king and then the king decides, you know. Uh, he looks at SD and the king has become uh, very powerful um, uh, and, and, and his power has been actually basically enhanced because now he, he basically selects who's the, who is the, uh, before this he basically endorses what the, election results are. But now today he has become, he decides, you know, he looks at the statutory declaration and in a certain hand he has got a lot of public support to it because public feel that these politicians are hopeless, the king is uh, doing the, the, the great job of, of getting to stabilize the thing. So yes, so we are, we have been, um, there's been change of government and this new government uh, is also with the government with 114 MPs, just uh, three shots, you know, three three MPs above. No? So you just need another three MPs to jump and it will become destabilized again. That is how uh, vulnerable this, this current government is. Now, the parliament is set to resume uh, sometime this month. And uh, so when you would assume that when the parliament resumed, um, the government's, the new government's majority can be tested in a vote of uh, no confidence or something. That's the usual thing in parliamentary democracies. But I understand that there may not, this may not actually take place. Is that right? Yeah, actually parliament is supposed to sit today. Yesterday, you know, it's supposed to start, but it has been postponed, you know, postponed to next week, postponed by a week. So a lot of people are wondering why. You know, because uh, it, there was a big struggle to get this parliament session going. You know, a lot of people wanted to bring, make the parliament dates earlier. And then finally it was delayed because, and then during the delay, see the, the previous prime minister, when he was clinching to power, the last thing he said was, I will go to parliament and seek a word of uh, confidence. You know, that was his promise to the king, but, but it collapsed. His government collapsed. And then when there was a joint meeting with the king, with all the parties, political parties, there was a statement made by the king where it was stated clearly that 
whoever is appointed the Prime Minister will test his confidence in Parliament. But now suddenly, the, the Attorney General uh, says, you don't need to do that. You know, he says you just don't need to go do it because if you do it, you are going against the king's wishes because the king was already appointed. If you are going to go back to parliament and ask for a word of confidence, you are undermining the king, you know. And 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 the, the worst thing in Malaysian politics is the king, sorry, the attorney general and the speaker are brothers, blood brothers. Okay. So, and, the, and there's a worry now that they don't want to seek a word of confidence in parliament. So now the, for, for people like us, we were pushing for a word of confidence because at least, you know, then the, you can at least see which MPs voted where. Because all this while, this statutory declaration has been something done in secrecy. Uh, the king writes to them, they write back, they send something in letter. You know, but it's not seen in the open. So it's very important for this word of confidence. Even though the opposition has said that they will not disrupt uh, the current government, you know, they will not put them, they, they will give them the support, something like that. In that sense, so that seems now to be a real fear. <laughs> why, why the ruling party, uh, is afraid to call a word of confidence. So now the question arises whether actually do they have a, do they have a simple majority? So I think that is the, that is the news which is playing in the country in the last, uh, 48 hours. Yeah. Now, uh, before the king made his latest appointment, um, uh, of, of the new government or, or at least, uh, the prime minister, um, did, did, um, there was probably a lot of people worrying that there was going to be some sort of, uh, comeback of the old forces in AMNO, um, in, in, in a bigger way in this government. But you have stated that actually the new cabinet that has been appointed is really not that much different, not that much different from the previous cabinet. So, is there any element of AMNO comeback in this latest change of government? Um, actually, a lot of people don't call it a change of government. They just call it a cabinet reshuffle because uh, almost 90% of the cabinet members are retained. You know, and uh, almost all the same political parties are the same government, you know. And most of the cabinet members' position are intact. And the cabinet is as big as before, you know, as bulky as before. The only thing has changed is the prime minister has been changed. And AMNO leader has been, has been put in place. And the AMNO leader, you see, just uh, before uh, this happened, within AMNO, we could see that the Registrar of Societies, the ROS, was, was making... Um, a number of statements, no, they were, they did not recognize the, the AMNO election and few things, you know. So everyone knew that the next thing, if they do not, AMNO might be dissolved, you know, through administratively, you know, they might say AMNO didn't follow and, you know, so that was in place. 
Suddenly, when they came to power, when, when Ismail Sabri from AMNO, the Registrar of Society withdrew whatever earlier issues they had with AMNO. So perhaps what, 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 what would, would have most likely happened is AMNO has finally come to an uh, agreement that, you know, there was a tussle between AMNO because who should be the who, who to put, put as the prime minister candidate. And they have resolved that crisis. And, and because of that, it has become a new, the new prime minister is from AMNO, but AMNO itself is not as stable because, you know, in those days, AMNO will hold the position of the, the ruling, the AMNO will hold the position of the home minister, which is very critical. Now the home minister is in the hands of Bersatu, the Mugidin's party. Finance minister is with AMNO still, you know. So, um, so they have made some compromises. And very recently, two days ago, they appointed Muhyiddin Yassin as the COVID, as a special committee. They made COVID as the head of the special committee. So it seems now that there has been a role, a deal has been made, you know, to, okay, uh, you become, you, you take over but you don't destabilize the government. Now, previously, there was some talk of a, a sort of national unity government. That is a government that somehow uh, brought in uh, the major opposition parties, um, like PKR, DAP, etc., into some sort of uh, uh, new um, unity government. Was that ever a prospect? Was there, were there negotiations taking place? And 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 what were those opposition parties prepared to do uh, in terms of, uh, you know, considering participation in such a government? See, uh, first thing is um, the election option is something not on the table because uh, of the situation of the pandemic. The COVID is so bad that the riot would not agree for an election to be held. In the absence of an election, the call for a unity government has suddenly become a popular call, not only among the opposition, even among the civil society, like groups like uh, Berse is calling for a unity government. Uh, people like Chinwad, you know, uh, is calling for unity government. And PSM and also has taken a similar position that you should have to, to create a stable, there should be a unity, unity government. And, and, you know, you should have good people put into and try to stabilize the country until the election, but fix a date for an election, you know, something like that. So in, the, in, in that sense, and Mahathir also called for a unity government. But at that point of time, the opposition didn't agree for that. You know, when Muhyiddin was, uh, at the, at the, a week before he resigned, actually, he finally sort of uh, gave an olive leaf to the opposition where he said, uh, I will change the system, I'll get you into the, I'll make the select committee stronger, I will make the prime ministers, their opposition leader, a full minister position and all that. He tried something, you know, which many said to be a unity government. He, he put out a few things like anti-hopping law, uh, a lot for some very good reforms, you know, uh, limit the term of the prime minister and all that. So in that sense, but then the opposition 
didn't agree to that. They want him to resign first. So there was a, some split within the opposition on this question. Uh, Mahade, uh, Pajuang and all that. Mahade's party wanted the unity government. Of course, perhaps, uh, but, but people from here, uh, Anua, Lim, uh, Lim Goeling, Mat Sabu, the Pakatan Harapan coalition, which is the main opposition coalition, felt that, you know, maybe they could just take over power, you know, from where they did. You know, you don't have to worry. So they didn't support for the unity government. So, and then you, both parties went and finally a new government was uh, formed. And initially we thought that he would, uh, he mentioned things like he'll bring in the opposition into the play. A lot of people thought the cabinet will be unity government. Then there was an announcement there won't be a unity government. But we'll form a COVID uh, special task force where we'll invite the opposition. So now it doesn't look like a unity government. It looks like the same recycled uh, previous government, you know, and uh, they're going to pull some people. And this is also what the king was asking. He called all the parties. King wanted a unity government. So there is some kind of uh, agreement not to, not to create any problems until the next election. So when uh, when the parliament actually resumes, do you think there's going to be um, a, a, a test through a no-confidence motion of uh, whether or not this government still has the numbers, or do you think uh, that is not going to happen? I think, I think uh, ultimately, uh, I this one week uh, postponement is for them to make sure they have that simple majority and then they will go for a word of confidence because if not it will look ridiculous it will really look as if that they don't have the support you see so I think they needed this one week of course everybody all the time huh, the COVID has been very helpful for the <laughs> for them to be clinching so every time they'll use one excuse that COVID situation is bad you know uh, the the last parliament session, the five day session was even brought short because they said some people were infected by COVID and they postponed it. So now, now yeah. this this whole uh, system of uh, lots and lots of um, politicians jumping from one party to another, hopping, um, isn't it uh, implicitly corrupt? You know, do people these politicians they're obviously offered something to jump. Uh, to hop. Uh, so are we seeing uh, kind of, um, you know, if, if you like a deepening of corruption after all, I mean, the, the previous momentum was, uh, you know, to, to, to condemn corruption and the, the former Najib, Prime Minister Najib you know, facing trial and everything else, you know, is the mood shifting? Is there, is there now more acceptance that politics can go back to the old dirty ways? of uh, willing and dealing behind the people's back. Yeah, dealing behind the people's back has been the norm, you know, it has been something along in, in the... In. For example, uh, GLCs, uh, all GLCs position, government-linked companies, directorships, everything has been given to politicians who don't qualify, you know, even though there's been a lot of call not to allow politicians to sit in GLCs, but even even then, uh, there was during Pakatan Harapan, they, they could have got rid of it. They didn't because they still wanted to have the GLCs there. But what was worse now is it's given to really 
every Tom, Dick and Harry who's there, they just, that is one thing. Secondly, they've used the anti-corruption to actually go for politicians. And then you can see, it can be seen systematically, you know, like what, what happened to like, uh, Xavier from, from Pakatan Harapan. Suddenly he, you know, there was an investigation going on him on anti-corruption, a few things. And then suddenly he announces that he's, he's leaving Pakatan Harapan and then corruption, everything stops, the investigation stops. So it's clear they are using uh, soft and hard approaches. You know, they're taking cases against uh, those. So they're using the same uh, old tactics and very corrupt. Uh, you know, here they, they're using this new term called durian, you know. Uh, durian is falling, you see. And, and to say that, you know, the, you, if you vote for me, uh, you have a durian. So, so it is the same, same old uh, politics. Same old, uh, and, and, and it has not improved a bit. Now, with the, with the pandemic weighing down the lives of most people, their struggle just to, to get through it, um, uh, the politics of protest has so, sort of shifted to uh, mainly to some actions led by uh, youth around the Lawan protests. Um, and they have been uh, facing a, a bit of repression, I understand. Has there been a, a return to a more repressive approach by the police and by the state? So the the Kita Lawan is a group of uh, young people, quite quite fed up with uh, politics, elite politics. But they face a different, uh, very uh, pandemic scenario. Of course, there's a lot of question whether you should go for a protest during a pandemic. You know, that is another debate at the side. But in spite of them, they did one uh, protest end of July, which actually uh, more than a thousand people attended, which was one of the most, was one of the big, with the pandemic, it was quite a huge uh, rally. And a lot of youth were involved. And the state was initially quite uh, accommodative. They did not go, you know, but as, as the time went, they became more repressive. Um, they went first time, you know, they go in, used to, they used to call people in for questioning, but this time they went even to their houses to check whether they live in, in those houses, which is something which was not done before. They've also charged some of them, which they've not done before. Before this, they might just call them for questioning and release them. So repression has sort of increased. Uh, and, and there has been uh, most sterner warnings given to this, uh, those who are attending the rallies. So, and, and, and I think, yeah. So there is now a mood that people are getting frustrated and they are definitely worried that this rally might get bigger. And, so, and the last rally, they, they just, uh, just a minute, they, they had one, uh, they took even a court order to stop the rally. Now, does this reflect some sort of, um, um, broader sympathy for this, these youth protests? Yes. There is a worry that, uh, this, this rallies will grow bigger, will grow, uh, huge. And of course, and, and also just there was, uh, one, the minister, the DG of health said, that the Kita Lawan, the rally, did not create any cluster, you know. So that was a boost for the Kita rally, Kita Lawan people, because it shows, because the early argument was the rally is going to create a COVID cluster. 
shouldn't go. You know, so when 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 the DG came out with a statement that when there was a question asked that was there anybody from Kitalawan, you know, and he says there was none, no no reported cases. It boosted the Kitalawan, uh, this one uh, call for the rally. They did get a lot of public uh, sympathy though. August 31 was the 64th anniversary of Malaysia's independence from British rule. Um, if you reflect back in that broader period, uh, do you feel that uh, politics in Malaysia has uh, managed to free itself from the, I guess, the, the bequeathed politics of divide and rule uh, between the major racial groups? Has there been any... Um, uh, move forward to break from 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 that uh, all racialization of politics in everybody's mind uh, covid is at the center point you know covid pandemic the death rate is very high in malaysia it's one of the highest in the world currently you know it's about uh, almost 300 people dying a day you know and and it's very serious and and so a lot of people are actually very preoccupied with these thoughts you know to actually even think about racial politics. <laughs> but but the issue is the the current government has reinforced, you know, that when AMNO, one of the conditions AMNO gave was no DAP into the new government. So it's trying to reinforce the view that DAP is a Chinese-based party or a Non, non, non Malay based party. They should not have any role in the government. So they kept reinforcing that when they wanted to form the takeover power. So in, in that sense, racial politics is, is very much uh, right there. We just heard, uh, yesterday that they are going to make some amendments to the Sharia law where they are going to have new laws to curb uh, non Malays from a non, non-Islamic religion, religion from, you know, they're going to have more restrictions. So I think this are put there to create further, uh, diversion, you know, from, from the real day-to-day economic crisis, issues of housing, healthcare and all that, you know, to, because this is something which is proven. But I think more and in, in, in a certain way, the pandemic unites the people on the ground. A lot of, uh, like help aid, is, is goes across the board. People from different uh, racial and religious groups come together to, to you know, help each other. So there are opportunities created by COVID on grassroots solidarity, but the elite is still using racial politics as ever to still be in power. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to um, a Green Left um, podcast that was produced, um, which um, featured an interview with Aru from the Socialist Party of Malaysia, and essentially where there were, it was a discussion about um, the Malaysia's newly kind of unelected kind of government, um, because essentially one of the kind of interesting things about Malaysian politics is some of our listeners are probably when this was something we actually covered. Um, when it happened, essentially, um, the, the Malaysia has been under the rule of a kind of conservative kind of, um, Islamist sort of government. 
and for since for years since um, British colonial kind of rule kind of ended and one of the kind of significant sort of breakthroughs that I think that happened around, I think it was around 2016 or 2017 or maybe, oh no, I think it was 2000, it might have been 2018. So 2018, there was a bit of a significant breakthrough when, uh, our, our opposition party actually managed to win, um, a more, a more sort of liberal sort of center kind of party that sort of encapsulated more kind of, um, more sections of the Malaysian community because typically Malaysian politics is generally dominated by Malay, um, who have, who were sort of given a lot of areas and generally, um, other sort of ethnic groups within Malaysia don't necessarily feel represented, um, by the political system, which includes the Chinese and in the Indian kind of communities within Malaysia. So, yeah. So essentially what, what has essentially happened is that the, the kind of right wing sort of conservative party through, um, undemocratically has sort of managed to get back into power. And so that was sort of a, um, a bit of the summary, I guess, of the discussion that was had, that was had. Anyway, I think, um, I think before I go, I think I was going to just go play, I think I'll play a quick, um, I'll play a quick song just to, um, give a bit of a change of pace for our listeners. And then we'll kind of move on to, I guess, our next, um, interview that we have planned for our program. You're listening to Green Left Radio and I was going to play World Turning by Yuffie Yindi. Signals 
Okay, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to World Turning by um, Yofi Yindi. And I guess for the next kind of part of the program, um, this was an interview that was um, pre-recorded, um, i.e. it was recorded um, yesterday. And essentially, it is a interview that I did with um, Common Ground um, residents who have um, essentially Common Ground was a social housing estate in um, Camperdown that was put into a hard lockdown similar to the Flemington kind of um, lockdowns that happened last year and essentially that lockdown has ended as of yesterday but that didn't stop me from um, speaking to two of the residents from Common Ground and you know about that whole experience and what they're kind of demanding in terms of compensation. So yeah, I hope listeners um, enjoy and um, yeah, this will be playing for the next 20 minutes. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Okay, you are listening to Green Left Radio and for our program today, um, we are go- we are going to be interviewing um, two residents um, from Common Ground um, whose names are Safin and Robin and Basically, Common Ground is a social housing um, estate run by Mission Australia in inner city Camperdown, and it was essentially put into hard lockdown on September the 2nd after four tenants tested positive um, to COVID, and then residents were given no warning and were not allowed to leave their homes for 14 days. So I guess the kind of first kind of question I kind of want to ask is... um, what can you tell us about, I guess, the nature, I guess, of this lockdown um, and how it was kind of imposed with, on residents with no kind of forewarning whatsoever? Um, it was it, there was um, a huge lack of communication between uh, us and uh, Mission Australia. So Mission Australia, the first few days, was in the building and basically managing the building and a few a few days later they just completely withdrew and gave all power to new south wales health and uh and the police without telling us uh what was happening they didn't tell us what was going on they didn't tell us that the police is here to enforce and we are here to mission australia is here to communicate to connect you with new south wales health downstairs and a few days later, we're not, we were not even able to contact the front desk. They completely um, isolated us from the, from downstairs. So we had to go through Mission Australia somewhere in a call center or somewhere in Tasmania or somewhere in Broken Hill. We would call the, the 800 number we would usually call to contact the security downstairs and it would take us to someone elsewhere. Um, so we had no direct communication between us and the people downstairs. And we had no idea what was going on downstairs because at every corner in, on my floor, there was a security guard. If I put my head out, would yell at me to go back into my room, into my unit. Um, so it was, it, there was no care taken in, in informing us of what's going on. Um, and for us to see the building surrounded by police, surrounded by, uh, um, by ambulances, sur- surrounded by healthcare professionals without knowing exactly what was going on. We knew we were in lockdown, but we, we didn't know why. Because four four cases does not, you know, require a whole building to 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 lock down. The building next door actually has currently has eleven cases and it hasn't been locked down. Um Waterloo has fourteen cases, for example, or Redfern between Redfern and Waterloo there's fourteen cases and it's growing and it hasn't been in lockdown. Um 
so so at the beginning we had no idea what was going on communication wasn't transparent uh communication was contradictory we would call one number they would tell us something and someone else would tell us something else and uh it was complete chaos the first four days so the first four days we had to actually organize within ourselves the tenants uh we had to um dig into our resources and our networks to reach out to the outside world and and see hey can you tell us what's going on because we're isolated here and we have no idea there's no way for us to go downstairs and speak to someone without getting arrested or yelled at um there's no way for us to um call a number in mission australia that would actually tell us what's going on because these are people who, the 800 number we were given um were for people who are not on site so we didn't have eyes or ears downstairs um and our only um way out was through our networks and through social media um and we organized quite quickly and it was uh, quite swift and i and i'm i'm very proud of my um of my group and my um uh, my neighbors who completely acted so professionally and so with care and and we reached out we reached out to everyone we can and just made sure all of our neighbors are are okay they have the care they need the first the first four days we did not have fresh fruit for example or fresh mm-hmm. food they sent us a box full of tinned highly processed food that i i did not eat any of it no one eats any of it and yeah great i'm thankful for that but uh access to to fresh food is a human right i don't like did you want did they want me to go hungry um i i wasn't sure why they sent us all this tinned food um and then when 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 we made noise a bit of noise on social media and twitter and um and uh um and uh, with with other people in the community they started sending us fresh food and addison um pantry has sent us also fresh food and and then all of the fresh fruit started coming coming in but then we we had other issues like people with mental health complex mental health um issues who are not meant to be left alone here they are without any support left alone in their apartment and um and we've had a few incidents incidences um during the first week when when someone was yelling out the window to Australia hear me my voice is my 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 voice is being suppressed flowing into that because you're you're kind of talking about you know how the kind of the nature i guess of the 14 day hard lockdown as it was kind of imposed on the residents and you know a lot of the kind of issues i guess that kind of flowed from there and i guess the kind of next kind of question that kind of flows from that is what can you guess tell us about you know some of the kind of organizing that kind of went um that the some of the residents did and some of the solidarity that you kind of received from the broader community um yeah the the broader community actually came together very quickly and um they were quite generous and swift in their action uh we were able to get some people to come out to our windows and show solidarity there were has there has been people who have actually personally bringing in food and uh care packages um there has been people in my community who have been um directly connecting us with uh mental health professionals because i wasn't too sure if my neighbor was able to um access um um a psychiatrist or a a mental health nurse or like i wanted i wanted people from 
certain cultural backgrounds to have uh, culturally appropriate support um, because it, that was not provided to us. Um, some of us here are bilingual. I I, I don't know what I, I don't know the demo, I didn't know the demographic of the building, but um, there's at least three or four different demographics in this building. Uh, um, we have people from the queer community. We have uh, refugees. We have First Nations people. Uh, we're quite diverse, and um, and they were treating us like one person. We they were giving us the, like Mission Australia and New South Wales Health were giving us a blanket uh, treatment. Um, so, so yeah, so the community came together very quickly and we were very um, overwhelmed by, by the love and the support they have shown us. Yeah, it was very, it was very difficult, obviously, and it was also really um, traumatic and I'm still processing it, you know, and the, the trauma, it's like we're really vulnerable. Everyone in here has some kind of history attached to, you know, mental health, illness mm. and addiction. To lock, to really exacerbate. A lot of people are incarcerated, and you've mentioned that already. But mm. People have been incarcerated and have difficult relationships with police. And then you look out your window, and you're surrounded. Your home is no longer your home. It's an institution. It's a prison made by the state, paid for, and you consider it to be a safe haven. It's no longer a safe haven. It's actually owned by the state. And so we live somehow in some kind of contract with the state. You've waived your rights to safety from them as well. So it's very difficult for us, for me particularly, like I've been really struggling trying to find a way to be able to proactively manage my anxiety and PTSD with the police. And I've had a lot of remedies with the police um, where I've been assaulted and in custody all manner of things. So, because I'm an activist, you know, I've been assaulted on behalf of others in the last but but I have also been insulted in private by the police, and they're not safe people to talk to. The kind of next question, I guess, that sort of flows out of that, and um, I guess this could be the, um, I guess, the third, I guess, in the sort of final kind of question, I guess, for this sort of interview is. What are some of the kind of demands, I guess, that you're sort of wanting to sort of fight for in terms of, I guess, compensation about this? And, of course, what the alternative to this sort of hard lockdown should have, um, what should have happened in, in, as instead? And I guess, yeah, I want to hear sort of your um, both comments from both of you on, on that sort of question. Okay, so what we want is the rent waiver for the period of the lockdown because we paid for something that wasn't actually being provided by in Australia. So we're campaigning to try and get our money back at least, at least a reduced rent um, for that period or no rent. And we also want um, compensation for the destruction caused by the police on deliveries and the violation of privacy through search orders. We don't know why they did that. Um, and justice for really the big thing for me is to get justice for the people who couldn't speak for themselves when they were arrested and carried away with that knowledge of their rights. And neither was ever explained to them and because they had disabilities that they had um, problems with addiction. They suddenly second class citizens and, and they're not people that have rights under the law. So you wanna yeah, sure. Yeah, so um 
So for, in terms of our demands, um, we were told that people who are on affordable rent um, uh, and have lost income, so people with jobs who have lost income, um, their rent will be renegotiated in, in that period. And that really upset me because it, for me, it wasn't really about the, 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 their actual rent um, because um, it was more about the emotional, the unnecessary emotional distress they've put us through. They've put us through so much and they are, they want us to pay full rent, um, but then they want to reduce the rent for those with jobs. And, and that's not fair. It wasn't, I, I, I lost a bit of income, but that's not the main issue for me. The distress that I've gone through has been, um, like, uh, has been, uh, Quite yeah, the the time I've I've spent the the fourteen days I've spent here has put me through so much agony that I actually have to take time off work. And if I take time off work, I can't get paid because I'm a casual worker. So um, yeah, one of the things that we we really want to push for is is reduced rent for all or no rent for all, not only for those who have lost income during this time. Yeah, and I guess. The, the sort of next question, I guess, that sort of flows out of that, though, is, oh, however, I mean, is because from my understanding, the Department of um, the Department, the, the New South Wales government imposed, I guess, this lockdown. What has been obviously the position of the, so, the company, um, i.e. Mission Australia, um, in terms of in response to this, you know, this totally unacceptable kind of punitive hard lockdown that you've all been put through what has i guess been their kind of position in relation to um to this well they basically um they were managing the building the first few days and then they decided it was too hard and they gave it up to new south wales health and the police so they basically abandoned us and they said hey new south wales health and police you guys take care of it because this is not in our contract and we can't take care of this building uh, full of people with high complex needs, uh, mental and physical needs. And um, and we relinquished all of our duty of care. And there you go. We they, they threw us under the bus, basically, and without telling us exactly what was happening. So the lack of transparency also has um, added to the distress and the uncertainty and the confusion and the chaos in the in the first few days. For the first four days, yeah, it was hell in here. Yeah, it was absolute hell. People screaming for food. You know, there was no one to listen to. They didn't even put a note under our door telling us what had happened. There was nothing, and we had to. So, and I just called. I called the CEO. He's the only one I know who works for Mission Australia. So I called him because I have his phone number, and he said, and I said, "What the hell is going on?" He said, "You have to help us in here." And so the next thing you know, we organised a Zoom meeting, another one, and then next thing you know, we had four four people from around the country who worked for Mission Australia on, on the Zoom meeting. Hmm. And that was really the first contact, mm. and that was four days in. Yeah. And we were furious. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. yeah, they weren't giving us answers. They weren't... Um... They were beating around the bush. We asked for a, for a meeting with New South Wales Health. One of our questions to Mission Australia was, how many additional cases are there? And um, have you, um, has everyone tested? And we just wanted to know how many additional cases there are. And they kept on telling us they don't know. How do they not know? 
if they're in co direct communication of, with New South Wales Health, how do they not know how many additional COVID cases? It's our right to know how many additional COVID cases. And it, and it took them 11 days or 12 days and we didn't get the answer from them. We got the answer from Jamie Parker from our Greens, Greens MP. MP, you know? So, I mean, these are the people who host this building, who take care of this building. We pay them rent. Like who, like, and, and then they leave us and then they don't want to reduce our rent because, you know, um, for whatever reason, they don't want to reduce our rent. But if, if, if New South Wales Health has taken over the building, maybe we should pay new, if, if they don't want to reduce our rent, maybe we shouldn't pay New South Wales Health the rent, not Mission Australia, because Mission Australia does not deserve that rent in these two, two weeks. It's very much behaving like a corporate entity. Yeah. And very much the, the corporate, um, about face that you get, which is to manage the legality of any any um, any fallout from the building. So they they're concerned with their public image, and they, the only reason why they were motivated to make that phone call on Sunday was because they were concerned, not for us, but for their public image. And that came through pretty clear over the course of the week. Yeah. But the more I tried to communicate with them and get our feet in it, including things like connecting us. To our, to our community to try and encourage the grassroots organizing inside. And I offered them the opportunity to talk to us and to, to participate in that process. And instead what we got, we got a, a corporate response and that response was to basically undermine, undermine mm -hmm. our efforts. Also to start sending out um, these, these shiny corporate leaflets. They started doing things like sending pizza to people. It was like we were being bribed or paid off when all we wanted was for them to talk to us. Yeah. And that was actually the thing that, that happens when you, when you, when an institution becomes really big. They have a legal team and they have a mm -hmm. media manager and they have all these things that they, they want to manage because they have so much money, almost 750 million revenue every year. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. You know, and it's like a corporate, a corporate entity doesn't have that relationship with people on the ground. It's a pretend plastic kind of a, 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 a paper. It's like it's like it's on paper. It looks good on paper. Mm. That's what they're good at. But as for a substantial relationship with people like us, they don't care. That's that's yeah. You know that's politics. It's well, politics. um, well, I'm kind of running a bit out of time, kind of now, but I guess. If you had any kind of final comments you'd like to kind of add for our listeners um, about this whole um, experience and I guess the whole kind of campaign, um, yeah, feel free to kind of add um, any comments you would like to, any concluding comments you'd like to add. Like, I think in terms of, like, being able to, we really do care about the COVID-19 pandemic and we do care, we, we care about our people on the ground and it's always been about the people and, it's, and their movements and their empowerment against brutality. You know, so the idea is that, like, if you fight, you get, and if you do the work, you, you win, you know, and I've always had that thought, and that's not the first time I've done this kind of work, where we have won, something hard won is worth fighting for, so that's why we're working in here, that's why we're working so hard, so if you have that spin on that at the end, is that you've got to fight. Yeah, you've got to fight them. Otherwise, they walk all over you and they'll take you for granted. But you're not there. And that's not good enough. 
I second everything he said. Yeah, well, thank you very much um, for being on our program um, this week. And, yeah, I think all the solidarity to you um, for everything that you've gone through. And, yes, um, I'll hope, uh, and I hope you, you know, continue to fight um, and I hope you win, um, especially in terms of, like, the questions around rent relief. Like, it's at, you know, absolutely as a minimum, you should be absolutely getting rent relief um, for all the residents at Common Ground. So, yeah, thank you very much yeah. for being on our program. Thank, thank you, Jacob. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a pre-recorded interview I did yesterday with um, Common Ground um, ha- um, residents. And, um, yeah, apologies for some of the um, – for for the audio quality on some of the issues. I did my best to sort of edit it as much and enhance sound, but yeah, um, but I think it was very good kind of hearing from these residents, especially after what they've gone through in terms of the hard kind of lockdown. And I guess one sort of thing to kind of note is um, about the interview and just something that we didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily explore in the interview, but one of the interesting kind of things is um, people are probably aware that um, Flemington was probably, was put into a hard lockdown, um, you know, where Residents were not allowed to leave their homes, etc. It was a clear kind of, you know, really punitive um, approach to to lockdown. And you know, there was there's been actually a lot of trauma as a result of the as residents who, as they kind of experienced it. And I guess one of the sort of issues is um, the the state government, to its credit, um, state governments around the world in around Australia, to its credit, sort of learned um, that you shouldn't do that to public housing estates. But for some reason, um, with Common Ground, because Common Ground is a community housing organisation, i.e. it's not necessarily public housing, it's not run by the Department of Housing, it's actually run by a social kind of, a community housing kind of provider, essentially that allowed a kind of loophole for the New South Wales government to impose this heavy handed lockdown, which as the residents kind of speak about, you know, has been a source of, of trauma. And I guess, I mean, one of the lessons is, I mean, you know, none of the residents are, you know, they are opposed to kind of taking action um, against COVID. But when it come, came to this kind of lockdown, they wanted to actually be consulted um, and, you know, have some kind of agency in terms of actually addressing the situation, um, being able to communicate to each other, etc. Because, you know, there's a, lo- a lot of tight-knit kind of communities get formed in the, within these sort of housing estates and, the gov- for the government to just opt for sending just the police and the barricades to just police them into submission, I think is I can completely kind of outrageous. All right, so the next kind of thing is um, now it is I guess quickly time just for the Green Left um, activist calendar. Now here's a most of all these events are going to be online. So the first meeting I kind of want to sort of highlight is on Saturday. Wait a minute, this is a bit confusing. Oh, yeah. Saturday, September the 18th, there's going to be an online forum, Save Our Community's Right to Have a Say Over Development. Um, and this is going to be a sort of a public meeting um, being organised by the Brunswick um, Residence Network. And essentially it is about discussing um, this. Um, it's, it's about the, it's a meeting organised by the, the Moreland community, essentially kind of discussing um, the Moreland Council's um, appro- um, voted has voted to give developers an incentive to provide good design by showing a design excellence scorecard. 
And so essentially a community group has kind of formed in kind of opposition to this because I guess one of the sort of oppositions to this is basically it essentially legitimises developers because, you know, what constitutes good development can actually be completely subjective unless you're actually taking into account, you know, the interests of the residents who are going to be impacted by the decisions that um, property developers make in, within, their, within their suburbs. And then the next kind of forum, um, there's going to be an online forum, um, Afghans in Limbo in Indonesia and Australia's Refugee Ban, which is going to be happening on Monday night. And it's organised by Refugee Action Collective in Victoria. And you're speaking at that meeting, Chloe, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, so yeah, if you want to encourage hear... encourage everyone to come along. It, it'll be, I think it's live streamed as well, so it might be recorded if you if you do miss it. Yeah, so um, yeah, Chloe's going to, our very own Chloe's going to be speaking at the meeting, so you can get the um, the link to the meeting at, um, at um, the Refugee Action Collective Victoria Facebook page. And then the next kind of online forum is um, there's going to be um, on Tuesday, September 21st, there's going to be an online forum, Energy Moving to Renewables, and that's going to be organised by... That's organised by Politics in the Pub Sydney. So this is actually a Sydney kind of base kind of event. But yeah, obviously it's going to be happening kind of online. And then there's going to be um, on Thursday, September the 23rd, there's going to be a Latrobe student organising meeting, Stop the Cuts at 3pm Thursday, September the 23rd. And then on Saturday, September the 25th, um, there's going to be an online speak out, Take Action for Afghanistan and Support Afghanis Women Resistance. Um, and that's going to be happening at 3pm. And then on um, and then on Monday, September the twenty seventh, there's going to be an online forum, the politics of solidarity and anti racism in the settler colonial context, and that's going to be a meeting organised by Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration. So if you check up out their Facebook page, you should be able to get the details. And then there's going to be an online solidarity sort of protest, defend the right to protest at nine a.m. And so that's been organised by Refugee Action Collective. And I guess something particular about that event that I sort of want to highlight is it essentially is going to be um, it essentially is going to be an online event where um, basically people are going to be encouraged to attend the actual court session. Uh, I think online, I'm not sure the details should be on the Refugee Action Collective sort of um, site. So yeah, that's going to be happening. And I guess the next kind of thing I just want to highlight is um, the, um, the online. There's going to be um, the Eco Socialism 2021 conference, which is happening from October 23rd to October 24th, which is going to be happening online, and it's being organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. So, yeah, that's yeah, get what, along to that. So getting along. Oh, and also just one more thing, uh, Jacob, if I could mention, there's an online forum called Escape from Manus where um, Javier. Elam will speak on his new book, and that's going to be on Sunday, the 26th of September at 11 a.m. over Zoom. Um, JV, he's now living in Canada, but he'll speak about the rotten offshore detention centre created by Australia's government and his determination <clears throat> excuse me, to not be subject to it and his incredible escape from it. So, yeah, read the book and, um, yeah, try to come along, try to make it to that um, on Sunday, the, the 26th of September. All right. Okay. So, um, just the the next kind of thing. I'll just play a quick announcement, and we'll go give have a bit of new um, discussion on some of the latest kind of news for the raining part of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. This. 
lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now, but she might be quite left. She might just be a spiritual hippie type. But there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings. There's almost a hippie-like quality to it, particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q. And it's getting people in there. But Q is not just a conspiracy theory, is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months. So your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And now, I guess uh, we're going to spend the next um, 15 minutes for the program um, discussing some, I guess, some news stories that have sort of popped up in Mm. the past week. Now, one kind of news story I kind of want to talk about is essentially... Um, there's been a major announcement. I'm sure probably listeners have probably heard, have probably got the announcement because it's kind of like, it's kind of like, in fact, I got an email about it from the Department of um, Public too. Transport, etc. I'm sure so, um, some of our listeners probably did. But essentially, um, the Victorian police have um, essentially, are essentially going to be shutting down public transport um, this, um, this weekend um, to basically stop an anti-lockdown kind of protest. Now, Obviously, you know, as we sort of asserted before, we don't support the anti-lockdown protests, mm-hmm. you know. Generally, these protests are completely right-wing, reactionary. They're against public health. Um, they're not even necessarily have it. They don't... And obviously, there's obviously criticisms you can make about how lockdowns have been applied, etc., and so on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these protests are not... They're not calling for an end to police brutality. They're not calling to an end to targeting of... <laughs> Uh, marginalised communities. They're not calling for income support. Um, they're certainly also not calling for more vaccines. In fact, one of the weird things about these protests is they typically tend to be anti-vaccination, but also anti-lockdown. But it's also like the irony of that is, you know, if you want to end to lockdowns, then maybe, maybe you should support vaccination. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. but going back to the essential point, I, I think that this is a, a, a kind of really kind of dangerous kind of precedent. Um, the fact that the Victoria kind of police are, you know, in some sense, essentially using the COVID-19 pandemic as um, as a means to um, attack civil liberties, I think is quite dangerous. Um, although I think, you know, in terms of like, um, uh, uh, in terms of like, you know, what the Victoria kind of police is capable of doing. I think it's, it is important to note that even before COVID, the Victorian police were getting lots mm. of increased funding. And in fact, I've actually been part of a protest back in 2016 that the police attempted to shut down. That was the Moreland kind of anti-racism rally in 2016. And yeah, one of the kind of the police actually did deliberately try to shut public transport back then. And in fact, I kind of remember when I went, I went 
they didn't necessarily shut it down. They, oh, wait, they didn't actually shut it down. Actually, I'm wrong. They didn't shut down public transport. What they did was they basically set up security checkpoints. So when I went to Coburg Station from Footscray, which was where I was living yeah. at the time, they essentially checked my bag, etc., to make sure I had oh. no weapons, etc. So there's already a kind of precedent for the police overreach of their powers. Um, but this is, I think, the first time that they've actually deliberately had the power to shut down public transport. And I think, you know, as left-wing people, while obviously we don't support the anti-lockdown protests, I think we should be concerned about this level of overreach. And But, of course, at the same time, I think this is not just... I don't think this is just um, the, the root cause is necessarily just the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the New South Wales government was also doing... Um, was also has been doing a lot of work attempting to shut down protests, um, even in the context of COVID being eliminated from the state. And that's that's been a current kind of trend consistently throughout all of last year and all of um, most of the year. So most of this year. So I think, you know, there's lots, um, there's lots of kind of critique here. And I think, you know... I think, yeah, I just think it's definitely unacceptable and I think we should be opposed to this. Um, the Victoria Police shouldn't have the right to just shut down public transport um, just because a protest happens to be um, happening. Yeah, if you are just tuning in and you don't know about this yet, trains, trams and buses won't run into the CBD tomorrow uh, between 8am and 2pm. So for six hours, extra police are going to be paid to just stand around the city and intimidate and fine and arrest people um, trying to take part in these protests. And, you know, I mean, as as Jacob said, we don't support the anti-lockdown protests. But, um, I mean, I yeah, it is it is a clear violation and, and police overreach, um, you know, really on display. And it's, you know, it, it's really, um, you know, they're really getting used to this terrible, like, I don't know, just, they, it, it, they're just using it as a way to increase their, their their powers to shut down protests. So it's it is kind of scary giving police these kinds of powers just to shut down whenever they want um, the Melbourne uh, public transport network. It sets a dangerous precedent. And you know, I mean, anti-lockdown protesters and anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists, whoever they are, you know, in this in this protest that might happen tomorrow, they will always find other ways to spread their message. You know, other than standing on the streets. Um, but if police are allowed to do things like um, use these military-style tactics, um, you know, they might be able to do the same for future safe protests um, that are socially distanced and are responsible. Like, you know, for example, like the refugee car cavalcade last year um, that got um, slapped with massive fines. Um, and you know, I mean, we did we did have like a we're forgetting the. Uh, Black Lives Matter rally um, that that had hundreds and hundreds of people, and that was a, a safe protest. Mm. Um, but it's actually poorer workers and essential, mm. you know, workers that might need to get on public transport tomorrow, um, you know, to care for someone or you know. Well, I mean, to work that, to be, to I mean, I imagine they're going to have to spend money on Uber or something to get into the city, etc. I mean, I'm not sure what the government is doing with um with Ubers, um, because previously mm. in um. On um, previously in previous sort of locked anti-lockdown kind of protests um, in Sydney, they've attempted to sort of ban Ubers from coming into the city. I mean, but oh. the thing is, I guess, I mean, logistically, I mean, because of how bureaucrat the government is, I mean, I mean, logistically, I mean, as long as people have a legitimate reason to go in, like for example, right. um, a friend of mine, you know, was in the midst of that trying to get into the city, and um, she basically said, "Well, I'm not going to the anti-lockdown protest if that's what you're asking." Oh, I thought I you had to show. I thought you had to show yeah. a permit or something. Like well, that. yeah, but all she said was, "I'm not going to the anti-lockdown protest. I just have to go into work." 
etc. And then the police just let let her go. So it's like, it's like I think there's like there's there's kind of like examples of that. So yeah, but I, I think- read somewhere. Um, I read somewhere that back in 2019, the rail, tram, and bus union had to call off their planned strike of um, you know around like thousands of of train workers in Melbourne um, because the government intervened through the courts, making the case that, you know, trains, um, you know, need to always be running because it's crucial to the economy and it would be unfair for passengers trying to get to work. Well, where's that economic justification now? It's just, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it's it's pretty hypocritical. But, you know, I mean, I'm uncomfortable with this, but it goes hand in hand with, you know, I mean, I've I've everybody heard about Sydney police stopping um, funerals, specifically targeting Muslim mourners from watching funerals from their cars. I mean, it's just outrageous, um, you know, racist actions by the police. But I mean, I, I don't want this anti-lockdown protest to go ahead, but I think it's a little um, far-fetched um, hmm. shutting down public yeah. transport. And just one thing, to, last thing to comment about this anti-lockdown protest. This anti-lockdown protest that's happening this weekend is apparently actually part of some kind of national kind of day of action with some international significance, which I think is mm. something as left-wing people we should be concerned about. The fact that there has been this growing sort of far-right, right-wing movement in response mm. to the COVID pandemic in the, and it has been centred around opposing public health measures and also opposing vaccination, like anti-scientific sort of ideas. Um, the fact that, you know, these these are actually very kind of dangerous ideas, and but the fact that the right is attempting to build itself through these dangerous sort of ideas, I think is even more kind of problematic. So I think there's um there's a there's definitely a bit of concern. I think and I think, you know, as left wingers we need to I think it just raises that kind of importance of building a left wing alternative to this sort of far right kind of um political trajectory. And I guess um going I just want to kind of um go into sort of the next kind of article. I mean going I'm um, just reading drawing on this Green Left article around um that is part of the Fighting Fund column for Green Left. And um title it's basically commenting on the job keeper and robo debt um um, robo-debt um, sort of situation. You know, it's an example of one law for the rich and the other for the rest. And this is referring to the fact that the Scott Morrison coalition government has gone to extreme lengths to shield big business who have essentially sh- um, watered the $90 billion job keeper program. Now, the JobKeeper program was, as um, Peter Boyle in Green Left writes here, you know, it was first introduced in March last year in response to fears of mass layoffs in the first COVID-19 um, lock, um, COVID, um, pandemic lockdown. It was paid directly to employers who anticipated that they would suffer at least a 30% fall in turnover. And essentially how that worked was companies with more than $1 billion in revenue could claim if they anticipated a 50% or more fall in turnover. However, bosses were not legally required to return the subsidies if their business did not decline by that much. We know that at least $13 billion went to companies that actually increased um, their turnover. And as large public um, companies released their profit results, it became clear that many of them, most notoriously the retail giant Harvey Norman, had done quite well despite the pandemic. But now the government is shielding the identities of private companies and overseas companies which received um, JobKeeper. And, you know, the government um, has, you know, under under kind of a questioning within the Senate, the government threw up a kind of like barrage of misleading figures and refused to release a Treasury analysis of the program or the names of the companies that received the subsidy. Its excuse was taxpayer confidentially. 
But I guess one of the kind of one of the sort of issues, obviously, is I mean, <laughs> if you contrast how the Morrison government has responded to this mm. issue of JobKeeper being rorted, um, you have to only compare it with their brutal prosecution of allegedly overpaid Social Security re- recipients in the notorious robo debt count um, scandal. And essentially, you know, thousands of mostly poor people were terrified and two people were put, allegedly driven to suicide in a legal spe- scheme which spent um, $606 million to recover $785 million. It took a class action by victims of the persecution, which ended in a $1.8 billion settlement and a Senate inquiry to stop it. Meanwhile, the multi-billion dollar corporate rorters of JobKeeper are gently urged to voluntarily refer to their overpayments. Billionaire Jerry Norman paid only back $6.02 million of $22 million his company received under JobKeeper in a year where it boasted record sales and a $521 million increase in profits over the previous year. But other big companies, um, many of whom pay zero um, in corporate tax have not been forecoming. Just $225 million in JobKeeper corporate subsidies has had been returned, 90% from publicly listed companies because they could be shamed. The federal government is determined to hide the, the identities of pri- the private companies that have received billions in, in JobKeeper, but this is really kind of nothing kind of new. And I think, you know, this is just kind of like example of, you know, reflected, it reflects exactly the nature of the kind of capitalist system. You know, the capitalist state is really designed to prop up kind of the rich. And of course, yeah. it's only really the, the fact that, you know, they obviously the government has to legitimize certain things that they, um, that they have taken some level of action against more the public companies. But the fact that they're doing everything possible to protect mm-hmm these sort of private companies who are essentially kind of rorted kind of the system. And I think, you know, that's why, you know, it raises a kind of case, um, you know, why we need to have a movement that um, to replace the system that has run on the energy and the resource of the rest. And then, of course, that is why, you know, that is where publications like Green Left in our program, Green Left Radio and 3CR Community Radio come in because it's so, you know, we need people power um to actually, you know, to actually overcome this. We need to build a kind of mass movement against this inhumane kind of system. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing. Unless, Chloe, do you have any final comments you want to make? Oh, yeah. I just, yeah, it's a massive double standard, and it, it is expected under capitalism that, you know, it's one way for the billionaire, billionaire class and another way for the rest of us. Um, you know, people who actually need to rely on Centrelink during tough times... Um, which is really due to the in, insecure job market and highly casualized workforce, um, there is this demand for income support. But to actually prove that you need income support, um, it can be really stressful and, you know, you're put through a really onerous um, process, whereas these companies, all they had to say was, oh, yeah, you know, we might lose 30% of profits. And, you know, they got to keep um, all that money. And I, I doubt they pass it on to any of their workers. They're just sitting on it. Um, yeah, so under under this system to access financial help for the poorest and most desperate, you got to, you know, go through this like navigate through websites. Too bad if you don't have the internet. Um, you know, God forbid if the government thinks you've been overpaid. Um, it's just the onus is on you to prove that you know you weren't overpaid, and so basically you have to prove you're innocent um, after being told you're guilty of rotting the system. And yeah, it's just yeah, it's um. Yeah, I just, it's just really, um, yeah, anyway, I could go on about it, yep. <laughs> but we're yeah, running out of time. But, yeah, it's just a complete disgrace. Mm. But, yeah. 
All right. Well, um, I think um, we'll um, we'll, we, we're, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, and yeah, um, stay safe, everyone. Um, apparently, um, there is a, a bit of easing of kind of restrictions. So if you're fully vaccinated, mm. you can have a picnic with four other people who are fully vaccinated, and they also have to be part. Apparently, only two. That only includes like two households. So, um, yeah. So I think that's um, that's just uh, the way of it. And um, yeah, I like to thank. Again, thanks all our listeners. Thank all our guests for being on our program today. And yeah, stay tuned for next week. Um, stay for safe. Lab. Thanks for listening. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.